Hello everybody, Ash here. Now what you're about to listen to is an episode originally uploaded to the Ear Read This Patreon page. For the moment, I've paused uploads to and payments from the Patreon as I focus on building the main channel. But if you are a patron, you can still access all the bonus content we have on there for free. And if you'd like to support the channel in the meantime, there's a link in the episode description box below. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the episode. You're lately come to Scotland, Joseph. I come from Lisbon. But you may have heard the chapbook singers and peddlers of verse cry their names down the street. You know, the ruffian dogs, the hellish pair, the villain Burke, the meagre hare. Never heard the song. What did they do? Eighteen people they killed and sold the bodies to Dr. Knox. Ten pounds for a large, eight for a small. That's good business, Joseph. Hello and welcome to another Patreon-exclusive episode of Ear Read This. My name's Ash and today I'm talking about The Body Snatcher, another Robert Louis Stevenson short story first published in 1884. I don't know if you've um, come across this before. I know it's pedigree. I know it's, I know a lot, you know, it's based on the, the rampant body snatching that happened in Edinburgh. Mm. So we, 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 we've sort of touched on this ground before yeah, um, with a Birkin hair yeah we insert a joke here about digging up old material uh so it's um it's another it's a short story it's um a, one of his christmas crawlers oh, you might remember name. that this this is the one where um the, it was published in the Pall Mall gazette mm-hmm, and I remember, stevenson yeah. was uh quite disgusted that they hired a bunch of sandwich board men to go out on the streets dressed as coffins and holding cardboard skulls, which he thought was tasteless. <laughs> it's quite, it's quite tasteless, but now in a rather kind of quaint way. That's it's it's quite fun actually. I didn't I didn't yeah. think you really got publicity stunts like that. It's not very Christmassy. I don't know. I love a I love a Christmas ghost story. There's an enormous. I don't know if it's just a British tradition, but an enormous British tradition of christmas ghost stories like they always mm. do adaptations on the bbc every year of like a henry james or a charles dickens does it have an offhand reference to it being set in december somewhere in the book or something <laughs> no i don't think they work like um lethal weapon movies uh <laughs> like, I, I don't think they they all have to be set at christmas like a liar the following year the body snatcher was one of stevenson's christmas crawlers It's still firmly in the horror genre, but much less weird and wacky than his Spanish vampire story. The Body Snatcher is as close to a conventional horror story as Stevenson wrote, and he seems not as proud of it as some of the other tales he was working on at the same time, such as Thrawn Janet and The Merry Men. In fact, he only sent it to the Pall Mall Gazette when one of his preferred stories, Markheim, was turned down. In our episodes on The Land of Counterpain and A Liar, we touched on what Stevenson called his brownies, or little people, who, as he writes in a chapter on dreams, are near connections of the dreamer beyond doubt. They share in his financial worries and have an eye to the bank book. They share plainly in his training. They have plainly learned, like him, to build the scheme of a considerate story and to arrange emotion in progressive order. Only I think they have more talent. In the beginning, in his Arcadian youth, their talent was sometimes overwhelming. They played upon the stage of the dreamer's mind like children who should have slipped into the house and found it empty. This was before Stevenson's education, his maturity and his training as a storyteller. He describes the process of becoming a working writer and its effect on his brownies in the same essay. The pleasure, in one word, had become a business. 
and that not only for the dreamer but for the little people of his theatre. These understood the change as well as he. When he lay down to prepare himself for sleep, he no longer sought amusement but printable and profitable tales. And after he had dozed off in his box seat, the little people continued their evolutions with the same mercantile designs. In the case of Jekyll and Hyde and a liar, he painted a picture of collaboration, if not actually committing a kind of theft, saying of himself, I am sometimes tempted to suppose I am not a storyteller at all, but a creature as matter-of-fact as any cheesemonger or any cheese, and a realist bemired up to my ears in actuality, so that by that account, the whole of my published fiction should be the single-handed product of some brownie, some familiar, some unseen collaborator whom I keep locked away in a back garret while I get all the praise, and he but a share, which I cannot prevent him from getting, of the pudding. Published fiction is important to note here, as Stevenson would never include the body snatcher in any of his subsequent story collections. Did he feel that this was a story he had written without his brownies, or by getting them to cook up a printable and profitable tale, like some Disney corporation of the mind? Maybe you think Stevenson's going a bit far here. Excessive modesty isn't very becoming in any great author, but my feeling is that he is speaking in earnest. Though we might silently censor references to uh, brownies and little people and replace them with imagination and talent, the sentiment remains the same. Stevenson had a kind of imposter complex. Which is why today I want to make a case for the body snatcher. He may have neglected it, and maybe we'll see why as we go along. Whilst it seems more conventional than works like Elia and Markheim, it has several points of interest. It ends with a nasty little twist, but I think the text has a few more secrets worth digging up. And it's also an unusual example of his basing a work of fiction closely on real-life events. But yeah, it's a, it's a story of um, this medical student who got involved with a Dr. K in Edinburgh, um, who he, he says, you know, I'm not going to give you his full name because he was involved with um, Burke and Hare. Well, um, we, go, we all know so, who that I mean, is now. Dr. Knox was the Scottish anatomist and lecturer who became infamous for his involvement in the murders of Burke and Hare. Dr. K appears only in reference in The Body Snatcher, but he is not a fictional stand-in or a sly knot. We are given to believe he is the real, literal Knox. Stevenson explains calling him by his initial by saying his name was subsequently too well known. Burke and Hare get walk-on parts as well as the two unnamed body snatchers, since infamous throughout the land. So, usual um, body snatching gig, but I, I kind of wanted to ask you more about Burke and Hare because I, I don't really know that much about it, and I was... Well, we um, we when when we filmed that thing in the surgeons museum, we we filmed one of those bits in front of the notebook, didn't we? We did, yeah. So one of the, I always forget which one it is. Eth, I think it's Burke, or is it here? One of them, one of them was hung, and one of them was sent down to London. Can never remember which one's which, but whichever I one think was Burke hung, was hung. Well, then it's his skin. There's a notebook made bound in his skin in the yeah. surgeon's museum, which is the kind of weird grotesqueries you'd get around famous criminals back in the day. But basically, the story is really simple, and it's that this was Edinburgh was at the cutting edge of medical science back in the day, and there was wasn't very many. This is before ethics came into its own in science so research was just conducted willy-nilly on bodies there was no consent 
and the medical students were going through bodies faster than bodies were being created. So they then started hiring people to go and dig up the recently deceased in the dead of night. And then Burke and Hare, being the enterprising fellows they were, decided to just cut out death as the middleman and hang around in pubs, get people drunk, take them out into an alleyway and beat them over the head, and then drop them off around the back door of the Surgeon's Museum. Well, at the time, Surgeon's Hall. And Dr. Knox probably wasn't the only one doing this, but he was the one who got caught, was paying them to do this. And I'm assuming based on the injuries they turned up with, he knew what they were up to and didn't care because he was getting fresh corpses. But yeah, it's I think proper... it's, it's also lack of injuries because they, they took to um, smothering them eventually oh, yeah. in order to, to keep the, the bodies like pristine. So yeah, um, basically, yeah, but basically it is a, a classic ghoulish tale of of enterprise and scientific ambition, which is why I think it lends itself so well to something like Jekyll and Hyde and Resurrection. Yeah. I think um I think the story goes that Hare and Knox squealed and yeah. were sort of treated with leniently and Burke refused to give anything up and so was um um hung and publicly dissected. Which is wonderfully ironic. Yeah. <laughs> Like, that is a real grim twist of fate. Not enough quartering. Hanging, drawing, and quartering anymore. Apparently, when he was hanged, they were, they were crying for the, uh, for the executioners to burke him. Um, uh, and this, this kind of, like, smothering had become known as, like, burking okay. someone. Wow. Um, so they thought, like, instead of hanging him, give him his own medicine. No wonder they made a um, notebook out of his skin. The story features Burke and Hare only fleetingly, more interested in its own fictional body snatchers. But details of their crimes resonate through the tale, as they would a little more faintly in Strange Case of Jekyll and Hyde. In the opening chapter of which, Story of the Door, a dirty rear entrance used by Hyde is introduced, and later discovered to be the back way to the home of the respectable Dr. Jekyll. This is predictably the source of a lot of homosexual readings of the story, but had a historical precedent too. When body snatchers would deliver their loot to the homes of respectable anatomists, they wouldn't risk being seen going in the front way. Closer parallels to Burke and Hare appear in The Body Snatcher. The narrator's suspicions are first excited by the delivery of a corpse he recognises. The name Jane Galbraith may be ironic. The surname means stranger, which he pointedly is not. Popular tradition holds that the body of Mary Patterson, a well-liked prostitute, was recognised by students of Knox in his lecture theatre. This may be a later sensationalist add-on, but pertinently for us, it is the horror in recognising a corpse that matters. A character important to the comeuppance of the body snatchers is given the name of Grey, also the surname of the couple who came the closest to catching Burke and Hare red-handed. This might be a coincidence, but it is clear that Stevenson had plenty of knowledge of the crimes. According to Ruth Richardson, he may well have heard tales from both sides of the dissecting room door. Not only had he been raised by a generation whose childhoods had been shadowed by body snatching and burking, but one of his uncles had actually trained under Knox himself. Sometimes reality borders on cliché. The burial ground featured in the closing moments of the story is located in Glen Course, a name which means literally Valley of the Dead. And believe it or not, it is no invention. Yeah, he wrote it in um, Pit Lockery. Oh yeah, in a, in a productive spell. Um, he, one of his, one of, his rare, of stuff. one of his rare um, breaks from being an enormous waif. 
Like the stories of his nurse, Alison Cunningham, before her, at Pitlockery, Stevenson was entertained by those of his landlady, Mrs Sim. According to Ruth Richardson, her daughter later recollected that on wet afternoons, Stevenson would request one of her old stories of ghosts or resurrectionists. He was freshly enamoured with his own culture, it seems, rendered doubly dear by distant travel. The same trip would produce The Merry Men and Thrawn Janet, the latter written in Scots, the former set in a fictional stand-in for the Isle of Ereid, one of the places Stevenson's family built lighthouses around. In the following years, Jekyll and Hyde, Stevenson would more successfully render the interest he had in split personality cities, with London standing in for the double role of Edinburgh's seedy old town and its enlightened new town. In comparison, perhaps he felt the body snatcher in poor taste, rather that instead of capturing places of his youth, he had literally robbed its grave and made off with one of its skeletons. And it's a it's a it's a framed story in which. Uh, someone recalls their history as a medical student in Edinburgh, working a, for a... He is a fan of these meta-narrative framing devices. At a pub called the George in Debenham, a crapulous old Scot with the name of Fetties drinks five glasses of rum a night, sitting with three other regulars. All are unnamed, and one is our narrator. He tells us that they have never quite got a full backstory out of Fetties, but the Scot was living in idleness, with a few vague infidelities and vices to his name. One night, a fancy-looking doctor with a fancy-sounding name of Wolf McFarlane arrives at the George, and his appearance excites old Fetties. The two seem to recognise each other. McFarlane attempts to hush Fetties, who refuses to be cast aside, and asks him, Have you seen it again? McFarlane makes a run for it and darts like a serpent, striking for the door. This ends the introductory frame to the story, and the rest is given to be the narrator's reporting of what Fetties tells the other three regulars in way of explanation. Interestingly, the narrator, in virtually his sole bit of characterization, takes it upon himself to get the old body snatcher to talk, since of the three, he is the better at worming out a story. In that story, they discover that Fetties was once a medical student in Edinburgh, along with the clever, dissipated and unscrupulous Wolf McFarlane, studying under the not-so-mysterious Dr K. It falls to Fetties to let in and pay the body snatchers at night, and although he harbours suspicions... Some bodies are turning up unnaturally fresh. He is not above chipping in with a spot of grave rob- robbing himself, accompanied by Macfarlane. Already unsettled by the delivery of Jane Galbraith's corpse, who he knew to be recently alive and well, things get even stickier when Macfarlane rocks up at 4am with the body of Grey, a man who the two students have been drinking with the night before. Recalling the eerie non-sequitur sentences of Jekyll and Hyde, Grey is described as very pale and dark the cut of his features giving a promise of intellect which was but feebly realised. He proved coarse, vulgar and stupid. Macfarlane had taken a disliking to Grey, and now looking upon his body, Fetties puts two and two together. Mr Grey is the continuation of Miss Galbraith, says Wolf. You can't begin and then stop. If you begin, you must keep on beginning. That's the truth. No rest for the wicked. He gets Fetties to put the corpse through the books to make it look legitimate in the eyes of Dr. K. Then he offers Fetties the money, saying he may be nervous now, but he will soon cast his lot in with the lions. Oh, and tell Richardson he may have the head. Sure enough, Fetties gets over it, and the two find themselves in Glencourse, aiming to undo the recent burial of a farmer's wife, who had been known in life for nothing but good butter and godly conversation. More gold comes Fetty's way from Macfarlane, who says between friends these little accommodations ought to fly like pipe lights. 
they have a cordial old time at the Fisher's Tryst, and then head out to the graveyard, which prompts from Stevenson the story's loveliest passage. Time has little changed the place in question. It stood then, as now, upon a crossroad. Out of call of human habitations, and buried fathom deep in the foliage of six cedar trees. The cries of the sheep upon the neighbouring hills, the streamlets upon either hand, one loudly singing among the pebbles, the other dripping furtively from pond to pond. The stir of the wind in the mountainous old flowering chestnuts, and once in seven days, the voice of the bell and the old tunes of the presenter were the only sounds that disturbed the silence around the rural church. The resurrection man, to use a byname of the period, was not to be deterred by any of the sanctities of customary piety. It was part of his trade to despise and desecrate the scrolls and trumpets of old tombs, the paths worn by the feet of worshippers and mourners, and the offerings and the inscriptions of bereaved affection. To rustic neighbourhoods where love is more than commonly tenacious, and where some bonds of blood or fellowship unite the entire society of a parish, the body snatcher, far from being repelled by natural respect, was attracted by the ease and safety of the task. To bodies that had been laid in earth, in joyful expectation of a far different awakening, there came that hasty, lamp-lit, terror-haunted resurrection of the spade and mattock. Coffin was forced, the cerements torn, and the melancholy relics, clad in sackcloth after being rattled for hours on moonless byways, were at length exposed to uttermost indignities before a class of gaping boys. They're also known as Resurrection Men. Yes, which is... Rather nice. uh, It's also a film, Resurrection Men. Oh, is it? And uh, do I want to talk about... Yes, I do. I want to talk about uh, Eurodance from the 1990s. There was a very weird spate of horror-themed Eurodance. (laughs) And there was uh, a guy called Dr. Reanimator who had a song called Move Your Dead Bones. Which is what? based on Resurrection Men. Is Eurodance the dance equivalent of Eurovision? It is a kind of minimalist sort of popcorn techno, like very minimal beats and very repetitive. Like it's like um rave and pre rave music. But yeah, there is there is horror themed Eurodance. <laughs> Some of it referencing Doctor Reanimator, but yeah, there we go. Tangent over. Keep, keep just get back to Birkenhead. Well, if I can uh, respond to one tangent with another, it reminded me the Resurrection Men thing that um, I failed to get into the our Don Quixote episodes. That in one translation or other, uh-huh. uh, Don Quixote is eating or, or has cooked for him resurrection pie. Okay, which in according to the footnotes is um, uh, a pie that sort of Spanish um, rustics would make for themselves out of the meat from livestock that has fallen off cliffs, that are tr- like trotted off and ac- met um, their ends by misadventure. So made of, made, made of livestock that wasn't designated for slaughter. 
pretty much. Yeah. Interesting. What a lovely phrase, resurrection pie. Uh, anyway, we're way off topic. The ghoulish conclusion of the body snatcher sees Fetties and McFarlane carry the body of the farm wife back to their gig and sitting her between them as they head for home. The heavy wet corpse in its sackcloth slides horribly from shoulder to shoulder, at which point they notice with nameless dread that the body seems somewhat larger than it was before. The rain had moulded the rough sacking to the outlines of the body underneath. That is not a woman says McFarlane. It was a woman when we put her in, replies Fetties. They draw back the cloth and discover to their terror the undissected corpse of Grey, head and all. The two body snatchers leap out of the carriage and their horse bolts, carrying the body alone in the gig down the road to Edinburgh. With this supernatural twist, the story ends with the two men forced to face their past crimes. We hear no more from the three regulars back at the George or how they take or respond to the story. But I want to posit one possible complication. I was at first puzzled at the inclusion of the framing device. It takes up a great deal of precious time in a plot-driven story. It does build suspense. Two older acquaintances, one asking the other if he has seen it again, does leave us to wonder and wait. And this all has an obvious purpose, but it could be accomplished much quicker and perhaps even more effectively if we were told it from the perspective of Fetis himself. The additional nameless narrator and his cronies seem like unnecessary padding. Unless you entertain the idea that Fetis is lying, in which case an audience is required to keep him at one remove from the reader. There is no decisive proof of this, but a couple of interesting pointers I thought I'd share. My theory is not that it was Fetis who in fact murdered Grey and not McFarlane, but that the two acted together, Fetis having a greater degree of complicity than he is letting on. I suspect there is a certain amount of cross-contamination of the two characters, that Fetties in the George accidentally gives McFarlane some of his own characteristics and claims the better parts of McFarlane for himself. To rob graves and pull off murders requires a certain level of cahoots. And while he's open about them working together, Fetty still paints himself as the much less soiled of the two. We hear that in Edinburgh he contented the organ he calls his conscience with roaring enjoyment, presumably alcohol. And given that on the night at McFarlane's appearance at the George, he leaves after only three of his usual five rums, are we supposed to think confronting his old grave robber in arms has soothed his guilt? Or has he hit upon a reframing of the story to delude himself with? So where is the evidence for any of this? Well, first off, in the rather shaky description he gives of his own character. Though he says he suspects and worries about the Burke and Hare stand-ins possibly offing their deliveries, he does nothing. He's terrified at the sight of Grey and could easily turn in McFarlane and escape the halter he fears he has put his neck in. I don't buy for an instant his being persuaded by McFarlane saying uh, Galbraith was the beginning. No, accepting a body from deeply sordid individuals and suspecting the murderers is not quite the same thing as murder itself. McFarlane signing this off with a cliche and not a very applicable one, no rest for the wicked, seems to underline the feebleness of his argument. Or, if you accept my theory, the feebleness of Fetty's version of the tale, clumsily airbrushing out his greater crimes. Fetty sells us the story of how wretched he felt about it and all, but his misgivings never lead to action. In one of the most horrible and brilliant lines, McFarlane says, In three days you'll laugh at these scarecrows. And sure enough, Fetty's does. Sorry for breaking off, but scarecrows, what a choice of image. Body snatchers are described soon after as not as crows, but close enough as vultures. It goes without saying what scarecrows themselves reminiscent of with their stiff posture and silent imitation of life. 
and the duo on the brink of cracking open yet another grave will indeed be laughing and joking beforehand. Everything about that line is perfect, but anyway. Aside from Fetty's not very well evidencing his conscience, there is McFarlane's not very feasible crime. He is annoyed at Grey calling him Toddy and leaving him to pick up a bill. This, we are given to believe, is his entire motive for murder. While he may come off like a bit of a jock, he's still a student. He'd stand a much better chance of pulling off his first murder with an accomplice, presumably Fetty's, who was doing what at the time of the murder? Sleeping the sleep of the just. Solid alibi, then. But maybe this is conjecture, as is being drawn to Fetty's wearing a camlet cloak, woven with the hair of the biggest Satanist on the barnyard, the goat. More substantially, there is a hint of doubling very early on. Wolf McFarlane, says Fetty's in the George. The name is a strange one. It were too much to fancy two. Stephen Arata writes of the confrontation in the George between Swanky McFarlane and Fetid Fetty's. McFarlane is compelled to look into the face of his own moral degradation, much as Henry Jekyll does when he looks into the mirror to find Edward Hyde. I think this is exactly right, though not quite in the same way, as Arata means. Like with Jekyll and Hyde, it is not correct to call one evil and the other good. There is a deeply murky overlap. What I think happens is that McFarlane is compelled to look into the face of a dissipated drunkard, one who has cooked up in a rum daze the unbelievable transformation of the farmer's wife into grey. In reality, I think the two body snatchers got away with it, and later in life, the rusty organ of Fetty's conscience has squeaked out a self-exculpating fantasy. His biggest slip-up, in my opinion, comes during that laughing scene before they dig up the farmer's wife. Remember that we are being told everything by the unnamed narrator, recalling what he was told by Fetty's. We hear first how the young Fetty's explained how he kept his head during the Grey Affair. It was no affair of mine. There was nothing to gain on the one side but disturbance, and on the other I could count on your gratitude, don't you see? And he slapped his pocket till the gold pieces rang. McFarlane somehow felt a certain touch of alarm at these unpleasant words. He may have regretted that he taught his young companion so successfully, but he had no time to interfere. Now, how are we supposed to know what McFarlane felt at this moment? Fetty surely doesn't know if we believe his story is in earnest. So we are left with two possibilities. The narrator added it for flavour, or Fetty's is remembering his own feelings, being not quite the young man he's representing and not quite the older McFarlane, but a blend of both. My final bit of supporting ev- evidence takes us back to the precedent of Burke and Hare. The public knew them as a murderous duo and didn't think too kindly of Dr Knox either, but only one of them was hanged. Hare and Knox made full confessions, leaving Burke to take the rap. Stevenson was well aware of this, and I think Fetty's is a fictionalisation of Hare at the moment of deciding to turn his old co-conspirator in. I don't know, there's a lot there that's probably not too sound, but poking around in these old crawlers is part of the fun of reading them. I hope you think the same, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Until then, happy reading. Thank you.